you know, in order to get where we want to go, which is like creating really amazing pieces of work for audiences everywhere, you need to have diverse production teams and diverse audiences. It makes the work better. It just makes the work better. When I say diversity, I mean diversity really broadly. And I don't just mean women. I mean, you know, people of color. I mean, ages too. Like that's the other thing about, you go to a lot of hackathons, tech hackathons, and it's all kids in their 20s, people in their 20s. I want it to be truly diverse. Like I want it to reflect the world. You are listening to She Does, a series that features women working in media, all forms of media. We wanted to know how these women got to where they are today. So we asked and found out and thought you might like to know too. I'm Sarah. And I'm Elaine. And this week, we'd like to introduce you to Ingrid Kopp, Director of Interactive at the Tribeca Film Institute. If you're not familiar, the Tribeca Film Institute, or TFI, is a nonprofit arts organization founded by Jane Rosenthal, Robert De Niro, and Craig Hatkoff. It was designed to bring business and culture back to downtown Manhattan after 9-11. Tribeca Film Festival, which starts a week from today, April 15th and runs through April 26th, and TFI are part of the same organization. But TFI runs year-round programs, supporting filmmakers and media artists working on documentary, fiction, and interactive projects. TFI also has a big public education program in New York City schools and provides young people with hands-on training and exposure to socially relevant films. In addition to her role as Director of Interactive at TFI, Ingrid also oversees the TFI New Media Fund and the Tribeca Hacks Program. When we say interactive, we're talking about storytelling that is nonlinear. We're talking about storytelling that's across platforms and different mediums. So, you know, pairing a film with an exhibit or an app or a website to really engage people in a number of different ways with the story. And that can vary. So that could be something like my project, Hollow, a choose-your-own-adventure interactive documentary, or something like Chris Milk's Exquisite Forest, where you were invited into a space and you got to draw each frame of this public art piece. It's really about engaging audiences to be part of stories. And Ingrid's the one supporting all of that, seeing it through. Yeah, definitely. And if you want to dip your toe into the world of interactive storytelling, you can see what different artists have been up to through a list I curated for you on our website at shedoespodcast.com. I still want to get a better idea of what Ingrid does and what she's done. And she's probably the best person to illustrate just that. I get to think about the theory, you know, like the theory of storytelling, who is consuming media on on which platforms. But then I also get to look at a range of really amazing projects and support artists who are doing really awesome work and think about how, as an organization, we can help them better, but then also planning for the future. So getting people to think about hacking and you can unpack things and put them back together again and and you don't have to accept things as they are, you can question things. It's such an exciting time to be thinking about documentaries and the future of media. And, you know, there's no shortage of stories to explore in the world. Everyone gets Sunday-itis and then, you know, Monday morning you're like, oh. And then I think about what I do and I just think, oh my God, I'm so lucky. And, and then to have all these amazing filmmakers kind of coming through all the time, it's like constant inspiration and sort of feeding you. But I, I am, I do get jealous sometimes. And when I see people who are deeply in a project, you know, in that way that you, you just like lose yourself in it, I get really jealous of that. But I, I know that I'm better suited to doing what I do. 
and supporting people who are in that in that zone. Ingrid was born in South Africa and grew up in the early 1980s when the country's government, the National Party, upheld ideas of white supremacy and enforced racial segregation under a system of legislation that it called apartheid. If Mandela were to... He does not want it. He stated it all over and over again. My father and his comrades at Portsmouth Prison send their greetings to you, the freedom-loving people of this our tragic land. But Ingrid lived in a white, suburban neighborhood, and most media was censored by the government. It was completely normal and banal in some ways, and completely extraordinary and weird in others. You know, it's very hard to, to sort of think about my childhood outside of that now. You, just, you sort of don't know any different. But my dad was an academic, and we actually um, we spent a year uh, in, in the UK in 1985. So I hadn't really seen the news of what was going on, and South Africa was under a state of emergency at the time. So that was a bit of a eye-opening year in my life. I was 11. And I mean, it's not that I didn't know some of that stuff was going on, but it definitely opened my eyes to exactly what was going on. The majority of South Africans recognize that apartheid has no future. It has to be ended. Do you remember the first, seeing your first documentary? Do you know what it would have been? I remember seeing Nanook of the North when I was, I guess I must have been a teenager, but it didn't have a huge effect on me then, I have to say. I, d I didn't realize, you know, I didn't really even understand the sort of historical meaning of it. Nanook of the North is a film made in the early 1920s by Robert Flaherty, and it follows an indigenous Inuit and his family as they go about their life routines in the cold, snowy northern Quebec region. It's widely considered the first documentary ever made. Doc nerds, bite your tongues. We know this can and has been debated. Oh, and it's a silent film, so we'll play you a clip. Just kidding. I watched documentaries on TV, but I wasn't particularly interested in them as a form, I think, until I really got to college. Um, so it wasn't really until I was in college that I really started to think about documentaries as being something other than what was on television at 9pm on a Tuesday night. Ingrid attended college at Sussex in the UK and continued her undergrad education at Berkeley in California. As she mentioned, this is where she took film classes and began thinking about documentary. She was never interested in the production side of things, but instead found herself drawn to the conversation around films, poking at them, seeing what happens when you look at them from new angles and challenge their claims. She was more academically interested in docs as a form, in curation and programming. That was where she found her place. And this is something that's continued all the way through my career. I was really interested in sort of facilitating other people's work in some way and having my hand in, in lots and lots of different projects at the same time. So I started at Channel 4 Television in the documentaries department there, which was perfect because it meant that I got to kind of look after, you know, a whole range of different uh, series and one-offs um, and got to learn a lot about uh, broadcast documentaries. Channel 4 is a public service television broadcaster. It was established in the early 80s to provide a fourth television service in the UK, 
the others being ITV and 2BBC services. But before Ingrid worked for Channel 4, she briefly worked as a designer and producer of educational games for kids. Between these two different professional experiences, Ingrid began to inch closer to understanding what her life's work could be. It's weird, at the time it kind of all felt really disjointed, but looking back, I can kind of see that the sort of the geeky strain and the documentary film strain were kind of, I was always very, very interested in both. At the time, PD-150s were the kind of cheap prosumer camera of choice for sort of up-and-coming documentary filmmakers, but it wasn't broadcast standard, it wasn't considered broadcast standard. And I remember being involved in conversations with the engineers at Channel 4 around, you know, how we could allow these projects made on PD-150s to be broadcast on television because they had incredible access and they were telling amazing stories. So I started to think a lot about how technology and storytelling kind of come together in really interesting ways and often butt up against the kind of realities of the world as it is. believes that documentary films, similar to journalism, play a significant role in our civic life. This is CNN Breaking News. International intrigue and an American fugitive on the run. Edward Snowden, the man who told the world... The NSA specifically targets the communications of everyone. One factor that sets documentary films apart? They are not driven by the 24-hour news cycle. So they don't have to respond to things as they happen. There's more time to really think about things deeply and longitudinally and often sideways. I think documentary filmmakers, the good ones, are often really good at, you know, taking something that maybe has been chewed over in the news every day and then really sort of thinking it through so that it becomes much more nuanced. It, it's actually in some ways resisting that news cycle, you know, where things get chewed, chewed up and spat out. And I really love that. I love that documentaries can make you think about things differently because of the way that they're, because of the time that the filmmakers spent with the subjects or with a story. And if you spend time with something, you know, it necessarily changes your relationship with it. And I'm not setting journalism up against documentary either, but I am a huge fan of, you know, I mean, I think journalism is vital, um, but I think you need both. They, they do things differently. Laura. Laura Poitras as Citizen Four. At this stage, I can offer nothing more than my word. I am a senior government employee in the intelligence community. Now, we all know that story. You know, there was very little in that film that was surprising to me. Oh, sorry. I, uh, my name is Edward Snowden. Uh, I go by Ed. Um, Edward Joseph Snowden's the full name. But sitting in that hotel room with Edward Snowden and seeing that process and understanding him as a person and understanding his reasons for doing what he did more and and being on along that journey with Laura Poitras is extraordinary. I mean, that's very, very different experience to reading the Washington Post or The Guardian when those when those stories came out. And those stories were amazing. I mean, I was on the edge of my seat reading them when they came out. But watching Citizen Four, I was literally I was speechless. Absolutely speechless. And that to me is a really great example of how a documentary can respond to things that are happening in the world. And, and add something very, very different.
So Ingrid received her master's degree and worked for Channel 4 in London, and then she decides to move to New York. Soon after arriving, she was offered the opportunity to launch and run Shooting People, an international social network for independent filmmakers to share resources and knowledge and get their films made and seen. Shooting People was founded by Jess Search and Kath LaCour, and it was based in the UK, but they were looking to expand overseas. This was in the late 90s, a time when digital cameras were becoming more affordable, and therefore making independent films was becoming more obtainable. The spirit of the organization was amazing. It was really inspiring to see people kind of doing a lot of sort of DIY networking and filmmaking before a lot of those conversations became really kind of mainstream. And one of the things that I love the most about it is I got to do some project management for the web, how networks work, on how communities form on the web, how you manage them as a community manager, some of which is very painful, but some of which is really interesting. And then also, you know, started to think a lot about user experience design and how you design for good things to happen. That note signals the arrival of a new partner we have here at She Does. As some of you may know, both Sarah and I are active documentary filmmakers. And being part of a filmmaking community and looking for new techniques to improve your independent films is an important part of being a modern-day storyteller. That's why I've been a member of the filmmaking community and academy at Story and Heart for almost a year. Story and Heart Academy has tons of awesome tutorials on every aspect of filmmaking, from do-it-yourself lighting techniques to how to pitch a film to a client. Hours that used to be reserved for endlessly Googling YouTube tutorials can now be spent shooting short films and expanding your skill set. All of Story and Heart's lessons are taught by some of the most successful independent filmmakers you know and love, people who actually make money doing what they love and rack up those Vimeo staff picks. As a listener of She Does, you get a special offer of $25 off the annual rate for the Story and Heart Academy. And as someone who spent a lot of money on film school, I'm amazed at the level of quality in the Story and Heart lessons. It's definitely worth the ticket price. Go to shedoespodcast.com slash academy, sign up, and become part of one of the most professional independent filmmaking academies on the web. That's shedoespodcast.com slash academy. I'll see you there. So Ingrid was settled into New York. She'd become a voice in this realm of media. She was doing a lot of writing and blogging about film and the web, pushing for new and alternative ways to think about storytelling. You know, one of the things that I've always thought about the film world is that we are too insular in the way that we think about how we fit into the wider world. So in some ways we're really expensive because filmmakers are curious people and creative people. But in other ways we talk to each other at the same film festivals and conferences. And what I was trying to do with these articles was really kind of think about, I guess, internet culture and audience behavior. You know, just really looking at how film, you know, fit into that um, a little bit more broadly. One of the organizations that she was writing for was Tribeca Film Institute, who along with the Ford Foundation was developing the TFI New Media Fund, a fund that provides financial support for social issue-based interactive projects. Ingrid's involvement with the organization increased, and gradually, it turned into a full-time job. It was a perfect fit. TFI, from the beginning, has been interested in connecting art to audiences and in thinking about who those audiences are. In 2004, Beth Jansen came on as executive director and headed a new initiative, Tribeca All Access, or TAA, which supports underrepresented artists and explores how to create content that will reach underserved audiences. This idea that documentaries are 
well, they're either perceived as being boring or they're perceived as being like not for me, you know, not something that everyone should be part of. Documentary stories relate to everyone in some way, but that maybe a 70-minute documentary is not the format for everyone. Um, and, and one of the things that I think interactive work can really lend itself to is, you know, this idea of the different entry points into a story and that, you know, people are consuming media in different ways now, but they are consuming more media than ever before. And so maybe it's just a case of really thinking about where you meet them in terms of the work that you're creating. And that that was one of the first conversations I had with Beth um, was about, you know, like, what could we do that would really kind of make documentary work exciting and accessible? I think the earlier projects funded are a lot different than the ones you're funding now. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's changed in a lot of ways. Yeah, it has changed. I think, I think, I mean, that's two things. I think one of the reasons for that is because creators are getting more sophisticated. There's more work out there. So there's more reference points, which means that you're building on the work. So the, the work gets more ambitious. So I think that's one reason. I think the other reason is maybe we've relaxed a little bit because we got more confident in terms of what we were doing as as TFI. I also started to think a lot more about, you know, interactivity as not just being digital. So one of the things you see in later projects is that, that some of the work's analog. It's, it's on the ground. That, so that was partly a sort of intellectual focus on what do we mean by interactive? Why does it need to be zeros and ones? Why can't it be people actually meeting in person and doing things? Uh, what does storytelling look like when it's analog? I'd started to think a lot more about access, digital access and what that meant, um, you know, which is one of the reasons we started the fund in the first place. But I realized that iPad apps don't necessarily solve the problem of, of access at all. I'm interested in emergent properties. I'm interested in our brain's ability to, to recognize patterns. Cogs is an interactive documentary that explores uh, a world of creative coding. What you're hearing are the sounds of Storyscapes, a collection of interactive installations set up to be experienced alongside the Tribeca Film Festival. It's Ingrid's response to these questions around access and interactivity, or as she says, pushing back against the coldness of technology. So this is on a human scale. It's an interactive video instrument made of people singing from all around New York City. Imagine a room scattered with five or so projects, set up so that each is their own unique experience. It's like a pop-up visual and media museum. It's amazing. And it's tracking your position. It's triangulating where you're turning your head. You know you're here too, but you feel like you're there as well. Um, it's a very powerful, um, amazing duality. It is really challenging, though. You know, how do you take something that was designed for the web, designed for maybe a single user, and create an, a, an experience that feels immersive and welcoming and communal? Um, you know, and I, I, don't, I don't know if we've completely cracked it, but it, it has been really lovely to see people in the space. And what's been the most rewarding is seeing people interact with projects and then talk to other people in that space afterwards so that you get that kind of conversation happening in, in real life um, because I've missed that online. I really have. And I love online communities. I love them and I participate in them a lot, but I do miss that. And I wish that we had more of that in our, in this world, um, more of a shared experience. I find this so interesting, Ingrid's struggle between virtual and physical communities. And it's not like they are two different communities. It's more that there are just two different ways to gather. The satisfaction and benefits of a physical gathering can never be replaced. And she's literally missing it. Like you miss a friend who's moved away. 
and she continues to create and host programs and events that allow for those real-life conversations, and one of which is the TFI Interactive. It's a full-day conference that's held during the Tribeca Film Festival. And the purpose of TFI Interactive is to really situate what interactive storytellers are doing in a wider context and to get people excited about the maker culture. So in order to do this, Ingrid invites everyone, from journalists, from established media outlets. What is the power of a question? To game designers, to people who teach kids how to code. into that chaotic narrative. That's what filmmakers do. To really talk about what they can learn from each other. Say progression is not linear. We want the storytelling to be at a level where you don't even notice the technology. It'll be composed of video portraits, photography, data visualizations. Hey, I know that girl. Yep, that was me. I took Hollow along with my co-director Jeff Soik to the TFI Interactive because we were one of the lucky ones that were funded by the Tribeca Film Institute's New Media Grant in 2012. And we got to talk about the project before it launched and give people a little bit of a taste of what was to come. Although TFI Interactive sounds like it's one big happy circus of web people clinking glasses and sharing great work, Ingrid admits there's a bit of a problem. I have found it really hard to get women speaking. Um, now, part of that is I think I, I think a lot of curators and programmers find this. I think part of it's laziness on the part of the curators. Do you think that's on women to own own what they do a little bit more? Yes, that, I think that's what I was trying to say before without saying it. But yeah, I do. I do. I, I, I think that, um, you know, like, I mean, it's. I think it's kind of a known thing that often, like everyone feels like they're faking it a little bit, but men are way more comfortable doing that than women and claiming it, you know, claiming to be an expert, claiming to be a pundit. I do. I think that is true. I mean, it's it's a generalization, but I think in general, I have found that to be true. And I I think that I have not been as good as I could have been as a curator. But it's also been really frustrating when I have reached out to people and they've said no. And I kind of like, I've sort of bullied a few people and been like, you ha- you know, you have to because we, you know, we need women up there. And it is really, really like, it's the only thing that will make all of this work well. You know, in order to get where we want to go, which is like creating really amazing pieces of work for audiences everywhere, you need to have diverse production teams and diverse audiences. It makes the work better. It just makes the work better. If you want this new interactive storytelling culture to be diverse and inclusive, where everyone feels welcome and where when you say civic dialogue, you really mean that, like civics in terms of everyone, then you have to do it early because otherwise you're going to start building in all of that, you know, legacy bullshit. And I just don't want to do that. I don't want to be a part of that. You know, I don't make the work, so I feel really weird talking about it sometimes. Um, but I also think that it's really important that we do. think about what it is that like that makes you happiest and then figure out like if that's something that you need to do as a job or if that can be as a hobby because I think you have to be a little bit entrepreneurial now about how you put together a career and that may mean that you know you need to work 
as something else in order to do the thing that you love because the thing that you love is not going to pay the bills and you have to be very, very clear-headed about that, I think. So, you know, it's not that you can't do what you love, but maybe what you love is not the thing that is going to be your profession and that's fine. But it comes down to you and, and what feeds you and what you need, you know, and I think I kind of wish I'd thought about it that way when I was in college because I think it would have taken a lot of the pressure off because I felt like I was always sort of making up my career, but then I realized that's kind of what my career is. You know, it just, it, it's unfolded in this way because that's how I am. And if I was someone else, I would have probably have had a five-year plan or a 10-year plan, but that's not who I am and that's fine. And I would have relaxed into that a little bit more, you know. There's all this kind of weird freedom that kind of in some ways freaks us out a little bit. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but I, d I definitely do think that thinking about it is like whatever you decide to do is a good idea because if you do want kids and you do want to sell them, send them to college, you may end up making different decisions. Through conversations I've had online and through just being interested in things, I have ended up with really interesting gigs, you know, like I've just ended up doing really interesting work kind of accidentally. If you do work that way and you're just sort of naturally falling into things and you don't necessarily have a five-year plan, you know, the downsides are your career will kind of go up and down and zigzag and, you know, go all over the place. So I think you kind of really have to decide, you know, what kind of creative life you want. And for me, it's just always been about exploring different ideas as they come up and not being so concerned about, you know, the next step on the career path. What do you think you'd be doing if the internet didn't exist? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I would probably be writing more. Um, I think I'd probably be writing long, longer pieces. I, f I feel like at the moment that I've got all these sort of half thought out things about the space that I'm in right now. And if I would only stop being so sort of monkey mind distracted, um, it would be articles and books rather than tweets and Facebook posts, I would imagine. And I'm a little bit sad, honestly, that I don't do that more. But I don't have the discipline. I think one of the things that I've found is that you have to like get outside of yourself and then get outside of the industry you're in as much as possible like read books about I don't know read poetry you know don't don't try and focus on interact books about interactive storytelling I mean by all means read those too you know I follow all the stuff on interactive storytelling I go to all the conferences on interactive storytelling like that stuff's really important but that's definitely one part of a wider conversation so I mean, I, I dip everywhere. I have to say, I find Twitter really, really useful because it get you are allowed to be a bit of a dilettante and dip into other people's worlds. So for me, it's like, it's like I get to eavesdrop on all these different professions and I love that. And then if you follow the links, you hear about interesting books and, you know, it kind of takes you on a little sort of treasure hunt around the web. In my experience, and I think many would agree, there's only so much constant technological chatter and screen time and career talk that we can handle before going haywire. Well, to really get away, I like to go away, away, like camping off the grid. I go into this world, this sort of space where I'm completely unaware of the time and sort of forget that the internet exists for a few days. And I really love that. But normally, if I can't do that, um, books, paper books, I really like paper books. Um, with lots of pages because it slows me down. I like things that slow me down. I would really like to write a book, actually. It's come up a few times. I really do. I feel like I have a... I know everyone feels like they have a, a something in them. I feel like I have a book in me. 
I think my biggest desire is to find space to slow down and think about the stuff more and not be so um, reactive. I think it's really hard to not be reactive in the space that we're all in, but I feel like, you know, everything can't be reduced to a tweet. You know, someone asked me the other day how I had time to read all the articles I post. And of course I don't. I read the headlines, I skim them and I post them. And then I feel like I've absorbed them some, in some way. And I'm sure that can't be doing good things for my brain. So, yeah, I'd like to write a book and climb Mount Kilimanjaro, maybe at the same time. Thank you to Ingrid Kopp for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. You can follow her on Twitter, at FromTheHip, and you can follow us at She Does Podcast. Tribeca Film Festival is happening next week in New York from April 15th to the 26th. And Terror, the Sundance award-winning documentary co-directed by our second guest, Lyric Cabral, will be screening several times there. Storyscapes runs April 16th through the 19th. So go say hello to Ingrid, meet the artists, and experience some interactive storytelling. We've included the TFI interactive lineup and the projects that will be featured at Storyscapes on our website. This episode was produced by us, Sarah Ginsberg, and Elaine Sheldon, and sound design was by our good friend, Billy Wurasnik. The music you heard in today's episode is by Zibrat, Poddington Bear, and Ketza. Thank you to our partners, Filmmaker Magazine and Alston Pudding. Visit filmmakermagazine.com to see five takeaways from this episode. And also, on April 10th, join us at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Google Hangout, where you get to ask your questions to Ingrid and Episode 6 guest, Lena Srivastava. Visit our website, shedoespodcast.com slash live chat for details. So if you've been with us from the beginning, this is Episode 7, and we want to thank you so much for listening and being along with us on this journey. It's a lot of fun. And one of the best parts of it is hearing from you. Actually, hearing what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show. So head over to iTunes and give us a star rating and a review and let us know what you want to hear. Thank you for listening to She Does.